Well, if you are new with us, uh, we are taking a six-week break from our regular series through the Gospel of Luke, and in its place, we're taking some time to kind of work through the vision and values of Centerville Christian Fellowship. Now, when I say the vision and values of Centerville Christian Fellowship, it's not that we have some sort of proprietary values or vision that's unique to us, unlike any other church. In fact, I would just kind of propose to you that if you go attend a worship service at any church and they tell you that they have something that no other church has, I would run from that church. Um, Because what's most important about any church are the very things that we share in common. And so as we work our way through, first, our vision statement two weeks ago, last week we began working our way through our five kind of values as a church, you're going to find that these are remarkably similar to probably every other gospel teaching, Bible teaching, Jesus-loving church around the world. And we think that that's important. I would hope that that would be the case. And so last week, as I said, we looked at our first of five priorities, which was God-exalting. And we, we saw that everything we do, everything we are, exists so that God would be magnified. So that our triune God would be exalted above everything else in our lives and in the world. Well, this morning, we're going to look at our second priority, which we are calling gospel living. And to do that, we're going to look at Paul's letter here to the church in Colossae. However, before we jump into our primary text here in Colossians chapter 3, If we're going to understand what gospel living is, we need to begin by defining our terms. Because that word gospel gets attached to a lot of things nowadays. We have gospel preaching, and we have gospel worship, and we have gospel music, and we have gospel-centered counseling, and gospel-centered parenting, and gospel-centered marriages, and gospel-centered college students, and gospel-centered singles ministries. And I'm just waiting for like, you know, the, the, uh, the marketing people to catch on to this. We have gospel-centered Bible translations, but gospel-centered refreshments, right? Gospel-centered cookies. Like, there should be all kinds of things that are gospel-centered. So it's important that we understand what in the world we mean when we use the word gospel. Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So the gospel is something to be believed if we are to be saved. In fact, in Ray Ortland's wonderful book called The Gospel, he defines the gospel like this. God the Son sent Jesus, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world in the power of the Spirit in order to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and rise victorious from the grave. And this gospel, or good news, is offered to everyone so that all who believe this message are saved from their sins. And in response, Christians are to take the message of the gospel throughout the whole world, testifying to the glory of the grace of God. Now, the gospel is the message that Jesus 
Christ has come into our world. He has lived without sin. He died on the cross in the place of all who trust and believe in him. He rose victorious from the dead and he is now sending those who believe and who are his followers into all the world so that everyone who believes and everyone who trusts in Jesus' death for their sin would be saved from the just wrath of God and given eternal life. That is the gospel. And the gospel changes us and it changes our status it changes our very identity and just notice in fact how this is implied in our text here in Colossians look at Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 that Caroline read for us a moment ago the word of the Lord says in verse 12 put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice those first three words in our English Bibles. Put on then. We should hit the pause button there because if we're going to understand what we should put on then, we should understand why there's a then there. Like what comes before the then that's so significant that Paul would say put on then or in light of this, put on this. So before we see what we are to put on, we should step back for a moment and see what's the, what's the ground or what's the foundation that Paul is arguing from then. In fact, this is one of the challenges of just dropping into a book of the Bible and preaching kind of one-off sermons. Not that that's a bad thing or a wrong thing. We're doing that this morning. We'll do that for the next several weeks. It's because ideally what we would need, in fact, what I, I would love to campaign for is four-hour sermons every Sunday, and we'll just preach through the whole book of Colossians. That, that may fix our space problems. <laughs> but since we don't have four hours this morning, let me just kind of summarize where we are at to this point. Because Paul's not just saying, do this or put on this, then in light of something else, arbitrarily. No, Paul has spent chapter 1 and chapter 2 building a theological argument, building a doctrinal argument for why we are to put on what we are to put on. So let's just take a moment and kind of see if we can understand chapter 1 and chapter 2. So chapter 1, if we were to summarize it, we could say chapter 1 is all about the unique glory of Jesus and the changed identity of those who follow him. So chapter 1 is all about the unique authority of Jesus and the new identity or the changed identity. Not fundamentally changed behavior. We haven't gotten there yet. That's in chapter 3. Chapter 1 is about the fundamental change in identity for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, just Flip your, your page back, maybe one page if your Bible's like mine, to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us, speaking about God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a transformation that happens. You once were in darkness, but now God, through Jesus Christ, has transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul makes the same point, if you just want to flip the page, maybe over to chapter 1, verse 21. 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice, again, the transition that happens for those who are in Christ Jesus. You were once alienated from God. We were hostile in minds towards our God. We lived in, in friction and enmity with God and God with us. We were under the just wrath of God, doing evil deeds. But now we have been reconciled or brought into right relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death, in order that we might now be presented holy and blameless before him. Notice again, we haven't gotten to all the, now do this. We've just gotten, we've just thus far talked about the glory of Christ and the changed identity of those who are in Christ. We haven't gotten to behavior yet. And this is really important because the ordering here is significant. Again, let me just make this point with one more passage here in chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, notice the transition. You were dead in your trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ. He's forgiven us our trespasses. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross through the finished work of Jesus at the cross. We have a changed identity. This is significant because this is before the then. This is the foundation that Paul is building his argument on. And we can see now when we come to chapter 3, Paul begins to make a shift. He's saying, I've just laid the foundation. God, the triune God in his glory, the work of Jesus Christ, the changed fundamental reality of those who are in Christ Jesus by faith alone. And now, in light of that, let's see how we are ought to live. In chapter 3, in fact, verse 1, you can see this now kind of Paul hinging off of built the foundation. Now, here's how we are to live. If then, this is the section that we read when we began our service this morning, you might remember. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul says, and this is significant, in light of who God is and in light of what God has accomplished, in light of your changed identity in him, now you walk this way. Live this way. This is the if-then Order. And this is significant because 
if we get this order wrong, if we just jump into chapter 3 and think, okay, I'm supposed to do these things, then what happens is this message, this text, begins to look like a whole lot of other things, sadly, that can take place and be called for in evangelical Christianity, which is just a series of do this and don't do this, do this and don't do this. And then we begin living life on this hamster wheel thinking, if I can just do enough right things, if I can just do enough godly things, God will be pleased with me, God will accept me, God will be satisfied with me. And what Paul talks about here in Colossians chapter 3 is not the ground of our salvation. It's not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of it. If you have been raised with Christ, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have this changed identity, then live this way. And the live this way is really important. Right? God cares about how we live. But living a certain way will not save any of us. Salvation rests completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in whom we trust and believe alone for salvation. So, to put this another way, the call to action in our text in verses 12 through 17 in chapter 3 is not so that we might become God's chosen ones or be raised with Christ, but this is because we already have, right? call to action is because we already have been raised with Christ. So, gospel living then begins with believing the gospel. Believing the gospel, being converted. But what we mean when we talk about gospel living being a value here at CCF isn't just about believing the gospel, it's also about living the gospel together. It's about a church family. It's about a culture and ethos that's shaped by the gospel, a gospel that defines our worship together, that describes the, 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 the cords of, of relationship that bind us and connect us together. In fact, this statement from our elders, I think, helps to capture a bit of what we mean. How we relate together or how we relate to the world around us, our friends, our family, our fellow believers, is guided by the gospel, which has and is transforming us from sinners to saints. It means it's, it's shaping us greater and greater into the image of Christ. It's, it's making us godlier. We depend on our triune God to live out his gospel in our lives. We practice the one another's of scripture to the glory of God and the encouragement of those around us. We utilize church membership and a simple church model to live out our faith in God together as a local church. Notice that living out the gospel in community is what we do in response to our new identity. In fact, chapter 3 in Colossians is not really so much about us as individuals, it, it is that, but even more than that, it's about us collectively as a church family in relationship to one another. And thankfully, Paul, I think, gives us chapter, or chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 to kind of show us, you want to know what gospel living looks like? Let me give it to you. And he does in verses 12 through 17. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time here in these verses. And I want to kind of guide us through these verses together utilizing four key ideas. So if you're keeping 
score taking notes this morning. We'll have four key ideas. First, gospel living means active loving. What does it mean to live out the gospel in community with one another? It means to actively love one another. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's clear that gospel living means we put on certain things. These are concrete ways that we as believers respond to the grace of God saving us and changing our identity. Notice Paul's clear, we are to put on compassionate hearts. The heart is really the center of our emotions. It's the center of who we are, the core of our personhood. And we're called to put on compassion to the point at which compassion becomes part of our character. In the same way, gospel living, Paul goes on, means putting on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I think another way of phrasing that would be if compassion is what flows from our hearts, then we will be kind. We will be humble. We will be meek. We will be patient. In fact, we're told how we are to do these things, where and in the, the venue in which we are to display these things. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So where do we exercise our humility? Where do we exercise our meekness and our kindness and our patience? We do so when we bear with one another. We do so when we forgive one another. We do so when we love one another well. In fact, if we're putting on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, we're we're going to bear with one another. We're going to extend more grace. We're going to be more forgiving. After all, Paul writes that our forgiveness is a direct reflection of Jesus Christ's forgiveness of us. In other words, this is not optional. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. These are ways that the gospel impacts our relationships. But according to verse 14, the bonding agent for all of these things is love. Is love. Look at verse 14. And above all of these, which is a Really big statement to make. (laughs) Bear with one another. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So though love is that, that cornerstone piece, that if we just get that one in right, everything else will, will be set in alignment. We square everything else off of that one component, which is love. 
And so a question, how can we be kind? How can we be humble? How can we be patient? How can we forgive as we are called to forgive? How, how do we do that? Answer, when we put on love. When we choose to love one another, regardless of things like our age or our background or our income level or our political preferences, when we choose to love in the body of Christ, despite our other differences, we demonstrate that the gospel love of Jesus Christ is more powerful and more important and more able to bind us together and create true unity of heart than any other affiliation or affinity in this world. And that's what the church exists to display to a broken and fractured and fighting world. That the reason for our existence and the reason for our unity and the reason for our love isn't just because we all think the same way or isn't just because we all kind of come from the same background or have the same income level or educational level or the same general age demographic or vote the same way or have the same political leanings. But it's because... The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends all of those things. And the Lord Jesus Christ has adopted us into one family through love. And so when our watching world sees a church that chooses to love one another and forgive one another and care about one another and be patient and long-suffering and meek and humble with one another, even when they see that happening among people who are young and old, among people who are very conservative and very progressive, they say, wait a minute, how is it that you all can love one another? How is it that you can be united together, that you can care for one another and serve one another and be compassionate for one another? We display the glory, we display the unsurpassed value and greatness of the gospel of our triune God. We are a part of a community then that exists to demonstrate that love. Secondly, this morning, gospel living means active peacemaking. Gospel living means active peacemaking. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So gospel living means active peacemaking. Like the only way we can actively love is through Jesus Christ working in us, Jesus Christ ruling in our hearts so that his peace, the peace we now have with God becomes the basis for our peacemaking. Because there are lots of things that we are tempted to pursue as the basis of our peace. For example, the fact that maybe we have a, a really good 401k that's well-funded and our financial advisor says, you should be set in retirement. Maybe that gives us peace. Or we go to the doctor for a physical and we get a clean bill of health and our blood work comes back normal. And we think, okay, this is the basis on which now I have peace. I'm young and I have energy and I'm healthy and I have peace. Or we finally, found, we finally met the, the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend and, and now we're set to marry them and we think, now I have peace because I can settle down with the perfect guy or the perfect girl and we can have the perfect kids and live in the perfect home and have the perfect life and that will be the basis of my peace. Or I have my plan marked out where I can retire early and now this is the basis of my peace. Or I have a great home security system or a really big dog and that's the, 
the basis for my peace, right? Like you can see there are all kinds of things that when we are tempted to be anxious or when we're tempted to be afraid, or as we sing, we're tempted to despair, and we can look around and begin to think, okay, I need, to, I need some sort of handle to hold on to that will provide me peace. And the Apostle Paul is so clear. I love the way he puts this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which is that changed status, changed identity, we have been justified, been made right with God that we talked about earlier, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer enemies of God. The wrath of God is no longer being directed towards us. But his wrath has been completely absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that now our relationship with God is a a relationship marked by peace. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a peace that the trials of this world or a stock market crash or sickness or a house fire or a fractured relationship cannot take away. And you see, if we, if we begin to, to saturate our minds with those kinds of truths, that, that there is a deep and abiding and lasting peace that the struggles and the fears and the storms of this life cannot touch, guess what? It allows us then to be more liberal with our spreading of peace, with our loving our neighbor, with our extending grace, with our needing not to hold on to relationships or try to make things right or make things work or make sure that justice is served or in our unforgiveness try to make sure that the score is settled, but we can liberally extend love and we can liberally be actively involved in the work of peacemaking because it simply mirrors the peace that we now have so undeservedly received from the God who made us. We have peace with God. And here in Colossians 3, we are told that this peace should be ruling us. Should be ruling us. That's an interesting way of phrasing peace of God should be ruling us. Because typically, when we think about something ruling, we think about force or power. But for Christians, it is peace that rules us. Not a clamor for control, for authority, for power, for our own way. But it's peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It means the peace of Christ should shape and conform and impact everything around it in our hearts. It should saturate and permeate our hearts. And this is why, according to verse 15, we should be thankful. Thankful because we have received by faith the very opposite of what we deserve by our actions. So that we now can extend to others as we seek to be peacemakers, we can extend to others peace that maybe they don't deserve as well. You see, this peace isn't just to be enjoyed, the peace with God, it's to be acted on. Notice the text says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Paul says, so this peace rules, it should rule our hearts, 
and should impact the one body, the church that we're made a part of, that we're gathered into. So this peace rules us, and as it rules us, it impacts others because it spreads outwards to others. You might be thinking, well, what does it look like then to be actively engaged in the work of peacemaking? And I think Paul gives us the answer. The answer is in the text itself. It kind of circles back then to what we're supposed to do in verse 12, to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and to bear with one another and to forgive one another and to put on love. So how well do we bear with our CCF family? How well do we bear with those in our small group, those in our Sunday school class, those we serve with? Even maybe especially those who we don't see eye to eye on in all things in life. How do we, how do we love and pursue peace? How does peace rule in our hearts and our relationships with other people in the body of Christ? Maybe outside this local body. I think this applies to our face-to-face interactions. I think it also applies to our online interactions. It applies to the things that we consume. The things we consume with our eyes and our ears, the things we read, the things we watch, the things we listen to, and the things we say, the things we do, they should lead us to be more compassionate and more kind and more patient and more willing to bear with one another. And if the things we're consuming do the opposite, we should question the things we're consuming. A third point flows out from this second point. Third point this morning, gospel living means active worship. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So gospel living means active worship. And by active worship, I don't just mean how we we sing in this room like this morning. But I mean what the Bible means when it talks about active worship, which is our whole lives. In Romans chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, Paul says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so what is our worship? Our worship is presenting our whole bodies, our whole selves, as living sacrifices to God. In fact, verse 16, I think, gives us two ingredients for what it looks like to have whole life worship. First, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How do we we live as whole life worshipers? First, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The word of Christ there is everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It means that our hearts and minds are completely saturated with Scripture. We're like the man in, in Psalm chapter 1 who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. Day and night, day and night, day and night, meditating on the Word of God that it might saturate our hearts. But there's a second ingredient to whole life worship. It's not just meditating on the word or letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. 
It's the first part. But the second part of whole life worship is then teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ dwells in us richly by by our teaching, by our admonishing, by our singing. And these are all actions that we take together. They're not done in isolation. Because we're called, remember Paul says, into one body. And so for us to actively live the gospel with one another means we help the word of God to dwell in each other. Like that's one of our highest goals as a local church. It's like, how can I help my brothers and sisters at CCF first and then around the world live so that Christ dwells in their heart richly so that they delight in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night so that they find their greatest joy in glorifying God and this happens formally like when we sing and when we pray and read and preach the word of God so that it will dwell in our hearts more richly and this happens informally when we open our homes to be places for the love of Christ to be seen, where the Bible, where Bible-centered conversations take place in the hallways or at the ball field or over a cup of coffee, where we ask how we might be able to pray for one another and then we really pray for one another, where we share meals together and have conversations about what we're reading in Scripture or how the Lord is working in our hearts, the things that we're struggling with. In fact, this is, I think, the the corrective for what Paul says earlier in chapter 3, verse 8, about how we are to put off anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Instead, we're to put on singing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You can do that by singing. Or you can do that by encouraging, right? I think both are important. And then finally, number four, gospel living means active gratitude. Active gratitude. Look at the last part of verse 16. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching, admonishing, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him I love how the spirit uses Paul here to sum up all of this by saying and whatever you do do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him like what if that were just our simple litmus test this morning before we have a conversation, before we respond on social media, before we think about what we're going to say to someone else when we see them later this week, over conversations around lunch today, we think, how can I, how can I, when I get behind the wheel, how about that one, today and drive my car out of this parking lot, which will be congested, and onto the road, which will be busy, and at the stoplight where people may not drive how we think they should, how can I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ According to verse 17, how can I do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? How can I give thanks to God the Father through him for all things? It doesn't leave much margin, does it? Gospel living means giving thanks 
in all circumstances. It means active gratitude. I love the way Paul writes it when he writes to the, the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. Like, how do I know the will of God? Give thanks in all circumstances. That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So we should ask, how grateful are we for the church? How grateful are we for our fellow CCF members? May it be true that when a fellow member comes up in conversation, when their name comes up in conversation, it is most often in thankfulness and gratitude and joy. And I love that dear sister. What an encouragement she is. And that brother is such a blessing to me. Like you won't be perfect at all these. And neither will I. And the good news is that these things and our adherence to these things is not the ground of our justification. <laughs> it's the fruit. The evidence is we continually put on these things, put on these things, put on these things, put on these things. And when we fail, we rest. Knowing that our assurance is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. And let's pray to him now. Would you stand with me? Father, would you take your word now and would you plant these seeds of your word deep into our hearts? that it might shape who we are, that it would shape how we live. God, I, I pray that amid, that amid all the things that, that could be said of your work here at CCF, even over these past years, how you have blessed with life transformation and you have blessed with numerical growth and you've blessed with new life being born and you've blessed with marriages being saved and you blessed with baptisms and conversions and, and missions and God I pray that what might be said about this church is this is a, a church that loves one another as we love you that we forgive one another as you have forgiven us that we that we seek and pursue unity that we live together with compassion, bearing with one another. Father, this is a work of your spirit in our hearts and lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would, just as you began that good work in us, you would be faithful to complete it. And when we fail and when we speak wrongly, I pray that we would run to you, the source of forgiveness we would be quick to forgive those around us. Seek forgiveness. We might be more and more shaped into the, conformed into the image of your son in whose name we pray, the name of Jesus.